1 Peter chapter number 3. We're going to dismiss Bridge Kids. That's all of our elementary age students, grades K through 5. We have a class just for you. Your teachers are ready and waiting for you at the back. So all of our Bridge Kids are dismissed at this time. 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll begin at verse number 8. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse number 8. It says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are swearing, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authority, powers having been subjected to him. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. We've got a lot of terrain to cover, so we're going to jump right in to our text this morning. This text begins with the word, Finally, in verse number eight. And what's interesting is Peter, 
excuse me, is actually beginning the end. <clears throat> He's beginning the end of this unit. So finally, in this text, actually means in conclusion or in summary. So if this is your first Sunday with us, as we've made our journey through the book of First Peter, where Peter is teaching us to have hope in a hostile world, then you've come on a good Sunday. Because we, Peter is simply summarizing what he said up to this point. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 22, Peter calls on his readers and listeners to a sincere brotherly love. He tells them that they ought to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He calls them to love one another because suffering requires community support. Suffering should never be faced alone. So to the suffering, God's word to you this morning is, you are not alone. You have a community called the body of Christ, the church, who is to come and undergird you during your times of suffering. To those of us who are not suffering and make up the body, our job and our duty is to come alongside those who are suffering. So Peter summarizes this thought of brotherly love beginning in verse 8. He uses five adjectives in the Greek to tell them how to sustain Christian community. At the center, He's got five adjectives, one, two, three, four, five, and at the center, number three, is the encouragement or the call to brotherly love. Y'all quiet on me this morning, so help me preach. Say brotherly love. Oh, I like it. That word for brotherly love is where we get our word Philadelphia. And this idea of brotherly love deals with kinship obligation. Peter here reminds his readers that since they have indeed been born again by God the Father, they are now brothers and sisters in Christ. They are a family. And as family, they have kinship obligations to one another. Brothers and sisters, this is crucial. We are indeed obligated to one another. Let me say that again because sometimes we act like we don't know this. We are indeed obligated to one another. And if we could get this as the church, it would transform the church and the world. This idea... I was thinking, as I was thinking through our, my text last night, I began to think about my wife. When we first got married, uh, I was a little surprised. Because every day, she talked to her mother. And I'm wondering, what in the world happened within 24 hours that y'all got to talk again? And I, I just began to learn 
how close-knit their family was. My family, we love one another, but we give you one another space. So I'll call my mama every now and then. Don't hate, don't judge. Not only did she talk to her mama every day, but then she felt this obligation to check in on her other four siblings. And she talked to many of them on yesterday. Y'all, she was on the phone as we were traveling back from Dallas for a funeral. She talked from Dallas to Oklahoma City. And sometimes they have the nerve to have a conference call. So I'm like, okay, okay, you know what? The benefit of this conference call is it won't take as long because you don't have to talk to one person. If every time they talk, they're going to talk at least 45 minutes, minimum. That's a minimum. When they get on the conference call, it's still an hour and a half. I learned that, that, that my, my, my wife, they have this obligation to one another. They feel like they have to talk to one another, catch up, tell each other what's going on in each other's life, call out one another sometimes, encourage one another, laugh at one another. They do this all the time. And as I've been married for almost 16 years now, help me, Lord, I've begun to appreciate this close-knit relationship that they have. Do the good and the bad. I tell my wife all the time, listen, we're not going to stay longer than three days during the holidays because after y'all get together for so long, y'all start getting on one another's nerves and something go awry. It never fails. But through all of that, they love one another and they express this through how much they communicate and talk to one another. They are crazy about one another. We'll do anything for one another. Here's the thing. My wife is as close to, should be as close to y'all as she is to her biological brothers and sisters. If we can communicate with our biological brothers and sisters regularly, why can't we do that with one another? If we can come to their aid and to their rescue in time of hurt and pain, why don't we do that to those who we are connected to by the blood of Jesus Christ? So he calls us as a Christian community to brotherly love. Now, what Peter does here, he starts taking some uh, uh, literary privileges here, and he connects these other four adjectives according to the mind and the heart. So the first and the fifth adjectives go together. The first one, he says, have unity of mind. And then at the end, he says, have a humble mind. All of these undergird the central idea of loving one another as brothers and sisters. These two are connected because they deal with the mind. This idea of unity of mind means to be like-minded. Now, this is not a call to group think. This is a call to oneness of attitude that results in harmony among the group. It has to do with oneness of purpose, mission, and the pursuit of a common goal. The last one, a humble mind, was interesting about this idea of humility and being humble-minded 
is that this virtue was actually disdained in first century Greco-Roman society. It was, it was thought of to be a sign of weakness. So when Peter calls the church to be humble, he's calling them to be an alternative society. He's calling them to counter-cultural living. So to be humble-minded is to be willing to take the lower place, to do the less exalted service. And here it is. This is the hard part because our culture doesn't believe in this. To be humble-minded is to put the interest of others ahead of one's own. Is that not what Jesus Christ did for us when he left heaven to come to, to earth? Is that not what Jesus did when he put his own life on the line and died on the cross for us? That's what humility looks like, and that's what we are called to as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the first pair of exhortations. The second pair of exhortations deal with the heart, which is the seat of the emotions. The second adjective is sympathy. And that means to be understanding. It requires seeing things from another's point of view. Now I'm ready. To have sympathy requires seeing things from another's point of view. The problem in the church is we lack sympathy because we live in echo chambers. We don't want to have respectful and gentle and loving conversation with somebody that disagrees with us. I wonder what would happen if the church was more sympathetic towards one another. Let me see if I can make somebody mad this morning. Maybe if we were more sympathetic towards one another, we wouldn't be so quick to judge. Maybe if we were more sympathetic towards one another, we wouldn't accuse poor people of being lazy. Maybe if we were more sympathetic towards one another, we wouldn't see those fighting for justice for all as flaming liberals. Maybe if we were more sympathetic towards one another, we wouldn't accuse our brothers and sisters who, who don't understand the burden of being a person of color in America as racist. We need more sympathy. In my manuscript, I put it in the world, but I think we need to start in the house of God. You cannot be sympathetic if you don't try to understand another's point of view, even if it's different from yours. And, and brothers and sisters, this is what we are called to as Christians, as followers of Christ. But maybe if we were a little more sympathetic, we wouldn't have as many heated debates and arguments about Calvinism, traditionalism, and Arminianism. And if you don't know what any of that is, consider yourself blessed. <laughs> this fourth adjective has to do with being tenderhearted. It simply means to be compassionate. And this is how we are to live toward believers. I forgot to tell y'all what my 
point was. My first point is this. Suffering believers bless because they are blessed. Suffering believers bless because they are blessed. Let me show it to you. Peter moves from dealing with how they are to live among one another to how they are to live among believers. Look at verse 9. It says, we shouldn't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Instead of trading evil for evil, we are to bless. That word revile means to insult, to verbally abuse, abuse. And I right now saying, Pastor, I ain't there yet. Mm-mm. Uh-uh. No, no, no. He's still working on me. I'm a work in progress. But for us, these called out, this called out community, we ought to bless rather than insult. And this is the rhythm, this word bless, it's the same word that's used in chapter one, verse three. Remember, I told you in the original language, it's where we, it's where we get our word eulogy. It means to speak well of. So when people verbally abuse us, when they insult us for our faith, rather than returning insult, we should publicly speak well of that person that insults us. Ooh, I just realized this message is a good word for Facebook community. Why in the world does he tell us to bless rather than revile? It's in the text. He keeps going on. He says, for to this, here it is, you were called. And everybody wants to know what's my calling in life. Here it is. Here's one of them. To bless rather than retaliate. It is the calling of the Christian to bless those who insult you. And I know these are hard words, but this is what we are called to. We are called to be opposite of the world. This is a call to counter cultural living. And brothers and sisters, living like this requires denying the flesh because the flesh wants to retaliate. You put your mouth on me, I'm coming for you. You hit me, I hit back. Ten times harder. That's what the flesh wants to do. But we are not people of the flesh. We are people of the spirit. What we are called to do is imitate Christ who blessed. So, we bless others as we bless others. The text says, we obtain a blessing. As we bless others, we inherit a blessing. Now, to explain what he means by this, Peter uh, quotes Psalm number 34. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. Hear it again. Our mouth is a big part of our discipleship and our holiness. And we'll keep our lips from speaking deceit. 
Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The blessing for the righteous or that God watches over them. That's what he's talking about when he says the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. The blessing is not only is he watching over us to protect us, to guide us, and to lead us, but he also hears our prayers. Oh, I thought all the praying people would have my back on that one. I'm so glad that the Lord hears the righteous when they pray. I don't know where I would be if God was deaf to my prayer. The blessing, ultimately, is that he is for us rather than against us. And if God be for us, who could be against us? So, friends, there is a blessing in being a blessing. There is a blessing in blessing. There is a blessing in speaking well of others when they don't speak well of you. So now, as we move on, because we still got a lot to cover, my second point, and this is actually my last point, but I got a lot to say about this one. Verses 13 through 22, Peter teaches them that suffering believers don't fear because they share victory with Christ. Suffering believers don't fear because they share victory with Christ. Let me unpack that for you. The text says, Peter begins in verse 13 by asking somewhat of a rhetorical question. He, he says, if God is for us and blesses us for doing good, who is there to harm us if we are zealous for what is good? My mic can't handle all my movements. <laughs> Too bad. But yet Peter knows as soon as he asked that question, he knows that evil forces are still at work. Because later on, in a, in a couple of more chapters, he's going to say that the, that the, the devil is, is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So he knows evil forces are still at play even now. So given that, he realizes that you, we may suffer for righteousness' sake. So in verse 14, he tells his readers and his listeners, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. If you suffer in this world because of your righteousness, you are blessed. That word blessed now is different from the other two times he uses the word blessed. The first time, remember I told you, blessed means to speak well of. Now, when he says you will be blessed, he, the, the actual word for blessed here means a highly privileged status of favor. A highly privileged status of favor. So Peter says that the favor of God rests on the suffering Christian for doing what is right and doing what is good. And since the favor of God is on you, since God is pleased with you, don't you fear those who intimidate and trouble you? 
instead of fearing them, verse 15, in your hearts, honor the Lord as holy. To honor the Lord as holy means to be devoted to Christ. To be devoted to Christ is to fear God. So Peter's point is, rather than fear man, fear God. And as we set Christ apart in our hearts, people will see our alternative lifestyle, our countercultural living, and they'll ask questions about your hope. I think, and this is something I'm preaching to myself, maybe do I, does something need to change about my walk if people are not asking questions? That's free, it's not even on the manuscript. And Peter says, when they ask questions, Peter says, you should always be ready to make a defense or give an answer to their question for your hope. And we simply do this by sharing and explaining the gospel. We have this hope in that because Christ came the first time, we believe he's going to come back a second time to save us from this world. And so we ought to be fearless in our suffering. Look at the words that Peter is attaching to this idea of suffering. First, he says, we're blessed. Now he says, you ought to be fearless. Blessed suffering, fearless suffering. Now he wants to tell us about victorious suffering. We are blessed, not only because we have God's favor on us in this world, but also because though we suffer now, we ultimately will be victorious over our enemies. See, the problem with many of us, is like this, this, suffering, this world is like a boxing match. It's, it's made up of rounds. Round one, round two, round three. And, if for, and then eventually, there's a knockout, which means the match is over because somebody has won. Many of us get rounds mixed up with the entire match. We think because we're suffering in round one, we've lost the whole match. But if that were the case, Christ would have never gotten up from the grave. See, all he did was that Satan uh, got some blows in against him on the cross. But what he didn't realize is that you couldn't keep a good man down because bright early Sunday morning, Jesus got up from the grave. He won the match. And so, so, so Peter's saying, you're going to win. How do we know this? Because that is the pattern experienced by Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's a simple recap of the gospel message. Now, in these next 15 minutes, ha. Let's pull up our sleeves and get to work. Verse 19, we get into some difficult water. Look at this. Verse 19 says, he's made a lot of the spirit, in which, 
he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Listen, good study Bible skills here. Ask questions of the text. Ask questions of the text and then seek answers. Help me preach this thing. Thank you. So, in which he went, stop. Where did he go? That's a question. And proclaimed to the spirits, what did he proclaim? Who are these spirits? Why are they in prison? Where is this prison? And all of these questions make this text really hard. So, let's see if we can make some progress. Scholars, let me just be completely honest with you. Scholars are all over the place when it comes to this verse. They all have different interpretations of what all of this means. And since y'all only gave me 15 minutes, I'll just share with you the majority view. If you like some of the other views, uh, let me know and I'll share them with you. The majority view is that the spirits mentioned in verse 19 are thought to be fallen evil angels. And these fallen angels are in prison because of sin. One scholar says their imprisonment is God's restraining power over them. The question is, how do they get to this conclusion? Let me show you their work. See, Brianna, even I have to show my work. Genesis 6 is where we find the story of Noah. And in the, in the beginning of chapter 6, it says that the sons of God find the daughters of men attractive. And they have relations with them and give birth to giants. These sons of God are thought to be by interpreters angels. That's in Genesis chapter 6. Now, there was additional Jewish literature that gives us insight into what Jewish would, what Jews would have been familiar with concerning this story. There's a letter called First Enoch. Not biblical, but it was part of Jewish literature. And in First Enoch, it's, it was said that fallen angels who abandoned heaven, slept with uh, human women, produced children who were giants from whose bodies evil spirits had come. And these evil spirits have taught people deeds of shame, injustice, and sin, and will continue to corrupt the earth until the day of the great conclusion, until the great age is consummated, until everything is concluded. So based on these two accounts, Scholars believe that these spirits are evil angels who rebelled against God and followed Satan. And these evil angels have now been excommunicated from heaven and confined to the earth. So that's the majority view concerning these spirits in prison. 
Here's the thing. Even if we subscribe to the majority view, we still have to wrestle with when and where did Christ preach to these spirits? When and where did Christ preach to these spirits? Y'all asking some good questions. Let me tell you how it was taught to me growing up. The old preacher would say, <clears throat> Friday, he died. Didn't he die? And then one preacher went this far. He said, after he died, he went and preached a three-day revival in hell. He got that because there is this thought down through a, a Christian history that Christ, when he was buried, went into hell. He descended into hell and preached or proclaimed to those in hell. And that's a fair assumption. The problem is that in 1 Peter, the focus is not on the descent of Christ. The focus is on the ascent of Christ. It talks about the resurrection of Christ and him going into heaven and sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's ascension language. So whatever is happening here, this is not, not about Christ going into hell. This is about Christ going to the Father. So then it's more likely that either Christ's resurrection was the message to the spirits or that Christ preached on his way to the Father. Oh, I can't, can't you just see that? Christ getting up from the grave, he done been 40 days with his disciples, and now he's descending, going back, and he's talking to all those angels in the spirit realm, saying, I won, I ain't dead, <laughs> death ain't got me no more, I'm coming back for you, you going to hell. <laughs> As you can see, his message was not the message of the gospel of salvation, rather it was a message of judgment but it was also declaring his victory over sin, death, and the grave. But yet we still have more interpretive problems. Look at verse 21. And this is the one that should give you theological indigestion. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Don't you wish there was sometimes you, you could just kind of get a sharpie, a real thick one, and just mark out some stuff. Y'all want to mark out the one that say bless and study and so. Ha! I know. But this one says, baptism, which corresponds to now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Wait, hold on. Baptism saves you? That's what Peter wrote. Why is this a problem? Because we believe, as Protestants, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Thank you. I thought I'd have some witnesses there. Once you start adding something to, 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 that, needs, that we need to be saved, we're no longer saved by grace alone. It's grace plus something. So our theology falls apart. But yet this text says, baptism saves you. Whew. 
Can we think through this together? First, we must remember that Peter says baptism corresponds to this. So he's equating baptism of the Christian to the baptism of Noah and his family in the ark. Hmm. I actually just solved the problem for you, but let me break it down. Let's review what happened to Noah and his family. Remember, Noah told, uh, 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 God told Noah, build an ark. Because I'm going to flood the earth. So take you and your family and some of the animals, each one with its mate, and go in the ark. Because it's going to rain. And that's exactly what happens. So what we see in the story of Noah is they were not saved by water. They were saved from water. One more time. Let me let you get it. They were not saved by water. They were saved from water. The water was the instrument of God's wrath against unrighteousness. The water was God's means of cleansing and washing away unrighteousness from the earth. And what saved them from that wrathful water was that they were, here it is, you ready? In the ark. Come on, catch up. And because they were in the ark, they were safe or saved from the waters of God's judgment. Can I make the connection? Christians are not saved by water. Rather, we are saved because we are in Christ. Christ is our ark of safety. And because we are in Christ, we are saved from God's wrath and judgment. I need my Pentecostals right now. Because anytime I talk about being saved, y'all ought to be running around this place. Y'all wouldn't get very far in this building. But still, you ought to be running because you've been saved from God's wrath and God's judgment. Your seat in hell has been canceled. So now, baptism then signifies and symbolizes that we are in Christ, that we have died to sin, and our sins have been washed away. There's the water, and we too have been raised to life. Remember, in the text, Peter solves the interpretive problem for us. He says, yeah, baptism that corresponds to this now saves you through the resurrection. He takes it back. We're saved through the resurrection of Christ, of which baptism is a sign of that. Everybody say sign. Thank you. But that's not the end. That's not the end. Look at verse 22. Peter says that Jesus Christ has now gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Christ has been vindicated and is now victorious over angels, authorities, and powers. The very people and powers that caused the suffering of Christ have now been defeated. They are now under him. He who was subjected to suffering 
has now been put in authority. Christ has won the victory over them. And, and beloved in like manner, because we too are in Christ, we are united with Christ, we too will have ultimate victory over all of our enemies. Because of Christ, we can declare with the psalmist in Psalm 23 that thou hast prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And that's a word of encouragement to the suffering. Victory is ahead. There is another side of suffering. On the other side of the pain, the trials, and the tribulations is victory. Now, here's the rough part. For some, that victory won't come until eternity. I told you yesterday, we were traveling from Dallas because we had to attend a funeral of my uncle who passed away. He had just retired in December. And now he was ready to enjoy his retirement. And then last Tuesday, I get a call and that he was found in his apartment unconscious and had gone to be with the Lord. And we don't know yet the cause of death. We're still waiting. But whatever happened, we have to realize, I told the congregation, that death is a reminder of God's grace, actually, for the believer. How is it a reminder of God's grace? Because whatever killed my uncle, God saved my uncle from it. He no longer has to deal with whatever it was that caused his death. And so here's my point. Sometimes God delivers us, rescues us, saves us, heals us on the other side. In eternity. And so no matter where he gives us the victory, here or there, that's what we ought to be encouraged by. That's what, we, what ought to motivate us and propel us to keep on keeping on. Rather than throwing in the towel, we ought to remember that we are victorious in Christ. And so we sing and declare, victory belongs to Jesus. Worship team, I'm going to invite you back now. That is what we are. His message is twofold for us this morning. In the face of suffering, we are still blessed. And even when we suffer, we must remember that we are victorious in Jesus Christ. So be encouraged. Hold on. Hang on in there. Because you are blessed. And you are victorious. Maybe you are here today. And you are not a follower of Jesus. You are not yet trusting in Jesus Christ for your sins, for forgiveness of sins. Today is a mighty good day to know him. He died so that you could live eternally 
And he did all the work on the cross. We've got some students here today from an organization called Student Startup. And many of these students are going to be mowing lawns. When the sun is beaming, when it's hot outside, real hot outside, like really, really hot outside, Many of them will have push lawnmowers and mow, mowing lawns of all different kinds of sizes. Oh, I'm just getting tired thinking about it. To get their reward, their payment, they're going to have to work real hard. But the gospel worked like that. Jesus has already done all the work for you. And our reward Is now. Because right now we can have eternal life because of Jesus. You don't have to work for it. The work is done by Jesus on the cross. You respond to his free gift of grace by simply putting all your trust, all your confidence in Christ and Christ. Not your ability, not your performance, not your effort, not your... But in Jesus Christ alone. And so invite that person who is not yet trusted in Jesus Christ to trust in him today. And God stands ready to receive you with open arms and to say, welcome into my family. You are forgiven. Your sin debt has been paid in full. It is finished. There's someone else in the room today. You need to respond to God's word. You are saved. You know you're saved. Does the world know you're saved? Is your life a witness to your salvation, to the hope that you have? Does your conduct put your haters to shame? Somebody else, you. You're going through some suffering right now. And maybe you have the wrong perspective on your suffering. God sent you here this morning to change your perspective about your suffering, to let you know that even when you suffer, you are blessed. The favor of God rests on your life. Maybe your suffering is to remind you that you are indeed his child. And Satan doesn't like it. And so he has sent suffering your way to discourage you, to get you to, to, to renounce your faith. And God's word to you is, because you are blessed, hang on, stand in there. Don't fear, but rejoice that victory belongs to Jesus.